I want you to turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, and I'm going to talk about a mother. I'm going to talk about Hannah. And I'm going to read a few passages from chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Okay. And chapter 1 and verse 1, this is how it begins. There was a certain man of Ramathayim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zup, son and Ephrathite. He was, we will see, it's very interesting why all these names are there. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other Peniah. And Peniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Paniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And a rival, that is, Peniah, used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? The story begins with a strong sense of place and person. There are actually nine proper names in the first two verses, if I'm not mistaken. Three places and six names. Now, if you were to look at the times that uh, these, uh, you know, the story is set in, And if you were to turn to Judges, this is how the book ends. The days were, in those days, there was was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is Judges 21 and verse 25. Now the story, the context of the story is set in that setting. Community life has become sordid, means like it's become cruel, Establishment hopelessly corrupt, political leadership incompetent, morals of the people decadent. Actually, if you were to read the uh, chapter 2 and verse 12, now the sons of Eli, who were the priests, were worthless men. So the society that Elkanah and Hannah and Peniah lived was a society which was cruel, which was corrupt, which had political leadership, which was totally incompetent. Morals of the people were decadent. Everybody did what they thought right in their own eyes. And it is into this situation 
that we see an old blind Eli clinging to power, incompetent to bring about any change. And that is a situation. And that is how, you know, the, the, the writer draws up the picture of that time. And that is where we have the story of Hannah, Hannah, Hannah wife of Elkanah, a godly Israelite, a Levite by lineage. Now, Hannah was a godly woman. We will see that. And Elkanah was a great husband. She didn't use Hannah to just have some children. But she loved Hannah for who she is. Even if she didn't have children, it was okay with him. That is why he tells her, you know, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? You don't have to worry. If you don't bring me any sons, it's okay. But the tragedy is, we see Hannah who is, you know, she lives in Ephraim, which is a fertile place, and it is contrasted with her barrenness. You know, Ephrathah is a place of bread. It is a fertile place. And against that background, we see Hannah's barrenness. She has no children. We see a Hannah who is hurt because of her barrenness, because that was seen as a result of something in her life that was displeasing to God. She feels both suspected and rejected and not even not understood. You know, you see this woman who is hurt, who feels suspected, who feels rejected, who feels, you know, she is messed up. She is messed up because she is barren. She has a wonderful husband, you know, and he does everything possible for her, but still she is broken inside. But the interesting thing about her is, you see from verses 9 on to verse 18, what she does. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, chapter 1 of Samuel, 1 Samuel, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not to forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. You know, even as I was reading this, it's very, very interesting. It almost looks like she is making a deal with God. She is saying, God, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. Okay? But there is something more going on. What is happening here is, what is Hannah doing? She is broken within. She is, she is, she is feeling terrible about everything that is happening in her life. She is bringing, she is, she finds a release for all her inattention by seeking God's fellowship. Her affliction becomes a school of prayer for her. Prayer, intense, passionate, emotional. Though her prayer is provoked by pain, it is not confined to it. I want you to listen to this very carefully. Though her prayer is provoked by pain, it is not confined to it. What does it mean? 
She both asked and gave. She asked for a child from God, but a prayer also includes the giving of the same child back to God. We see in verse 11. Here she no longer prays for a child for its own sake. The pain of childlessness is, not, is now reoriented to the service of God. It no longer revolved around the pleasure of a child that a child might give to a husband or a herself, but around her desire for God's glory. You know what is happening here? She is reframing her brokenness, her desires in the larger desires of God. So what is happening here? The situation, what we see here is, you know, when she comes for an annual visit to Shiloh, what is it that she is saying? It is a time of restlessness. It is a time of conflict because she can see the degrading temple practices. You can see that when you read chapters 1, 2, and 3, they were stealing from the offerings they were doing. They were sleeping around with women. They were, it was a terrible time. And so whenever she came to this the annual, you know, her annual pilgrimage to Shiloh, all what she could see in the midst of her brokenness is this fact that how, you know, it was a time of restlessness, conflict, because she saw the degrading temple practices, blatant self-seeking of the younger priest, the arrogance of their servants, and she would, might have felt, how must God feel about all this? And the situation in Israel called for a leader, a prophet, who could rebuke the evils of his day, preach the truth, and call the whole nation to repentance. See, you and I may have desires. You and I may have problems. You and I may be broken inside. But you know, if you are able to frame our brokenness, if you are able to frame the desires that we have for ourselves, in the greater desires that God has for his kingdom and for his people, God is glorified. Hannah didn't have a child. She longed for a son. But you know what she says? God, look at your people. Look at your country. Look at the people whom you have called. Where has it come to? It is a place which is broken. It is a place where it's become corrupt. People are doing what they like. But in the midst of all this, Lord, I see your heart and you see my heart. So I want to bring my heart and put it with your heart and say, God, here, if you give me a son, I'm going to give it back to you so that you can raise him as a prophet and as a leader who will put things right again and will bring the glory that is due to Israel in coming back to the God who called them to be. You see, we, that is a great lesson we need to take, is this one thing. The desires that God has put in your heart, put it in the larger scheme of things, which will further the kingdom of God. For Hannah, it was, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Her desire was, Thy kingdom, seeking, the, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. When she asked for a child, it was no longer for the pleasure of just having a child. It was for that great purpose that God may use that child to get a whole nation to repentance. 
The desire for a child was not for her reputation, nor for her pleasure, or for the defeat of her rivals, but to be the man of God who would put things right. You know, actually, Hannah could have been released from a vow easily by her husband. You can read that in Numbers chapter 30, verses 10 and 20. Her husband just had to say that vow is not, you know, you are released from that vow, and Hannah didn't, would never have to give her son back to God. He could have easily done it, and she could have easily found a way out once God gave her a son. You know, Hannah's first concern seemed to be, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. She is very specific in her prayers. We see that in verse 11. What do we read? In verse 11, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give you, give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Yet she has a very specific prayer, specific in her prayer. Yet she's a servant completely surrendered to his will. And do you know something? One particular prayer is a turning point in Israel's history. And then we see Eli, you know, sending her with words of peace and power. And that is enough for Hannah to believe that what she has asked of God is going to be true. Verse 21 to 28, it talks of Hannah having her first child. And just let me tell you that Hannah's child is a miracle child. Birth of Samuel was a miracle. On a lighter note, it was not a result of being relaxed. Okay? It was a gift from God. We often, often think that we can have children whenever we want. And we often indulge us in practices which are not God-honoring to delay the process of having children and all of those things. Be careful. You cannot play God. God is the one who gives us the gift of children. Never, ever forget that. It is not in your hand and my hand to have children. If God doesn't choose to give, you can do everything under the sun. You can never have it. But if God chooses to bless you with a child, he can do so graciously. The birth of Samuel was a miracle. And you know something you read in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10? Hannah's story begins with tears and ends with singing. You know why? Because she had a God, she had a perspective that was godly. The thing that she prayed for most deeply and treasured most closely, she gives it up. And when she does it, she explodes in worship. And that is what we read from verse 1 on. My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. And she goes on to say many, many things. And then she says, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Verse 9, he goes on to say, she goes on to say, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. 
and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. You can see here verses 1 to 3, her faith in the Lord. Her joy comes entirely from his goodness. She lives by what she knows him to be. The enemies of the Lord will be done with. You know, rock-like realities are nothing compared to God. Hannah learned this in the conception, birth, and offering up of Samuel. God is sovereign and nothing has to remain the way it is. God embraces all of life. That is life, death, success, and failure. From the perspective of the underdog, God does for us what we cannot do for our own selves. But I want to bring home another point before I close. You know what Hannah does? It says once she has weaned the child, she brings him to the temple and leaves him at the temple. You know how old that child would have been? You know, in Hebrew custom, to, a child is weaned when, first thing, when it's weaned off the mother's breast. Then the mother teaches the child the things of God. And by the time the child is able to go to the temple and minister, that is when they are weaned off their mother. That is what the expression weaned of the mother means. So the child would have been anywhere between six, seven, eight years old. Now I want you to, I drew the picture very carefully to begin with. What is the picture of Israel? What is a temple? There is this old man who is blind called Eli, who is the priest. He is in the temple. He is incompetent. He cannot do anything. He is just clinging on to power. He has two sons who are priests. They are corrupt. They are robbing the things of God. When there is a sacrifice made, they will take the best portion. They sleep around with the women in the temple. They are corrupt. They are immoral. They are adulterous. How is the political situation? Everybody is doing what they think is right in their own eyes. Think of it. And you know what this mother is doing? This is the firstborn. After years of praying and seeking from God, she gets this firstborn son. You know what she's doing? She is going to leave this child in a place which you and I would never do. She leaves the child with an incompetent old priest with his sons who are corrupt, immoral, and adulterous, and in a political situation which is equally worse. And this mother leaves Samuel at seven years of age in this situation, in the temple. You tell me as parents, would you ever do that? We are so concerned which school our children will go even before they are born. We want them in the best universities. Nothing wrong with that. We are thinking which side of the street we should buy a house so that we can go to a school which is the highest ranking. Nobody wants to go to the school which has the poor, the lower strata of society. Nobody wants to send their kids there. Nobody wants to send their kids to public school. Nobody wants to send their kids to secular universities. 
You know why? Our children will get corrupted. But that is exactly where the world needs a Christian testimony. It is the parents' responsibility to bring up the children in the fear and knowledge of God. If you are going to chase after these things, if you are going to chase after the best school for your kids, the best universities for your kids, the best of everything for your kids, and forget that if you don't give your child to God, you're going to lose them in the end. Don't blame God when they walk away from you. Don't blame God when they walk away from God. You know, Samuel might have been just seven years old, impressionable, young kid. But God comes to him when he's hardly maybe 10 or 12 years and calls him by name, Samuel, Samuel. And God hears, and this little, this Eli, who one of the greatest thing he does is, you know, he realizes it is God who is calling him. And he tells this little Samuel, tell him, what is it that I, what is it that you require of me? You know, what I want to tell this morning is this. There are many young couple in this congregation. God has blessed you with kids. Don't plan so far ahead that you lose sight of whom your child should really belong. If you have not given your children to God, you can give them the best that you think is the best, but you will lose them in the end. Don't think, you know, by sending, to the, sending them to the best schools or the best universities, it will make them something into something better than the other. Think in this way. There are schools which requires our children to be there. You know why? Because they may be the only voice who can tell them about Jesus. Are you and I willing to take that chance with God? You know, let me end this. A turning point in the history of Israel after a century of moral and spiritual decline. It begins with Hannah's ministry of prayer. Beginning of a great renewal in Israel's fortune. That is what you read in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Within one generation, Israel recovered its faith, vision, and destiny. By the end of a second generation, Zion, the city of God, has been founded and built, and David's throne has been established. The word of God is being heard. The new temple is planned. And people are being taught again to look forward to a greater glory yet to come. God is extolled for the triumph he has given to his kings. And the steadfast love he will show to David and his descendants forever. 2 Samuel 22 and verse 51. We see here prayer as a service to God and to the glory of his name. Now I want you to listen to this very carefully, mothers. Hannah is an ordinary person fulfilling the humble vocation of a housewife. All she did and achieved was done without any dramatic call to do it. Hannah is not an activist. She didn't arrange for any demonstration. She preached no sermon. She served God simply through her suffering prayer and through an obscure act of personal yet costly and total sacrifice. 
She won an important battle for Israel's future on her knees and in her heart before God. Mothers, let me tell you something. What you can achieve for the kingdom of God, others cannot. You have your children. Your jobs are not important if you truly believe God is the one who is going to meet your needs. Don't, if you don't have to send your wives to work, don't send them. Because let them teach your children when they are in that impressionable age the things of God. Don't drive them and sell them to the marketplace so that you can have a few dollars for a few years and for the very excuse, if we are doing it for our children and when they grow up, they, you will lose them then don't blame. Then don't look at your child and say, we did everything for you. What is it that we have not done? They will look back and say, you did everything for yourself and not for us. Don't get into that kind of a thinking. I am preaching against the culture, even among ourselves, even among our own people. Please don't do it for God's sake. Mothers are very important for their children's spiritual growth. It is at the knees of their mothers that they learn to love and trust a God who is so gracious to keep you and sustain you. Teach them from a childhood that we don't have to have all the things in our lives. We don't have to be rich, but we can trust a God to put food on our table and be gracious to us. He will sustain you. He will keep you. And he will bring you. Let me just say this once again. Hannah is an ordinary person. Fulfilling the humble vocation of a housewife. All she did and achieved was done without any dramatic call to do it. Hannah is no activist. She arranged no demonstrations. Preached no sermons. She served God simply through her suffering prayer. And through an obscure act of personal yet costly and total sacrifice. She won an important battle for Israel's future, alone on her knees and in her heart before God. May that be true of our mothers and also of our fathers, because without the father's help, the mothers cannot do it. So the responsibility of the father is to trust God so that they can make provision for their wives to be mothers that God has called them to be. Hannah is a great example. We don't read about her after that. We only read her in the first few chapters of Samuel. And after that, she is obscured. But you know whom we read about? We read about the first prophet, Samuel, who brought a revival back in the life of the children of Israel. Do you want that to be your heritage? Or do you want something as fleeting for another 30 years? which will go, and nobody will even remember it. We today even talk about Hannah because of what God enabled her to do. My prayer for you this afternoon is that we too may be remembered for what we were able to do, to do for God and his kingdom by his strength and for his glory. Father God, we want to thank you for this time, and thank you, Lord, for being so gracious and so kind to us. Thank you for speaking to us, Lord, and thank you 
for your word. Oh God, even as we go from here after this wonderful meal that you have provided for us, we pray, Lord, that we will think on these things. We will go back home and maybe read 1 Samuel chapter 1, 2, and 3 and look at it, Lord, and see what it says and how it speaks to us. Allow the word to speak to us, O Lord, so that we may be able to submit ourselves to the word, trusting you, Lord, for all things. Thank you, Lord, once again for everything. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your son. Will you bless our fellowship? Will you bless the food? For we ask and offer it in Christ's name. Amen.